Thanks, Megan, and good morning, everyone, or afternoon, or evening, or Monday, or whenever you are with us. It's a privilege and honor uh, to share with you in our continuing ongoing church life as we remain in this unusual season. Uh, we are in the book of Acts, continuing the book of Acts for the rest of the month of August, and this morning, uh, our theme really is encouragement, as we've already seen both in worship and in Chris's interview. So please take a moment, we'll pray together, and then we'll look at what this particular text has to say, a very powerful word about the importance of courage, encouragement in this season. Please pray with me. Father, I'd like to thank you that we can gather uh, all around the world and around our city to listen for your voice and to allow you to shape us to be people of hope. We are mindful that our world right now is very much in need of voices of hope. Uh, we are in darkness needing light. We are in anger needing a quiet word. We are in places of shame needing encouragement. So would you feed us, Father, in order that we might feed one another as well by being the presence of Christ? We'll thank you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most memorable experiences in my life was the birth of my uh, oldest daughter, Christy, partly because we lived in Friday Harbor at the time, and in order to give birth, my wife needed to fly off the island uh, to Billingham. So my daughter was born on October 13th, 1984. And that morning, uh, as Donna went into labor and we got on the plane, there was a massive storm. It was a thunderstorm, actually. <laughs> and so we're up flying over to Bellingham in a small plane and needing to land so that we can get a van to the hospital so that she can give birth. And I'm sitting in the front with the pilot. My wife's in the back with a nurse. I'm listening with the headphones on. The pilot asks for permission to land. And uh, the tower says, permission denied. Like, I don't know when you ever hear that, but he said that crosswinds were too much on the runway and he couldn't land the plane. So we're circling in this holding pattern, waiting for the wind to die down so that we can land, so that we can get a cab and go to the hospital and deliver. And the pilot, when, when he hears permission denied, he looks over at me with this big kind of grin on his face. He says, this could be a very unusual day. But there we are in literally a holding pattern. And as I talk to people pastorally in this period in which we find ourselves, the words that I, use, that I hear from people describing this particular season are words like this. I feel stuck. I feel like I'm in a holding pattern. I feel like I'm just waiting for things to return to normal. I, I, I feel like there's, there's no way forward. And that's a kind of a dangerous place to be in because when we feel stuck, the, the risk is that we stop growing. The risk is that we just kind of put our life on hold until we can get back to something that uh, resembles normalcy, thinking that when things return to normal, then we'll grow again. And here's the thing, uh, we don't wanna be stuck. And not only do we not wanna be stuck, I'm here with very good news today to say that you don't need to be stuck. A major point of church life is you and I are called, even in this season, to set the table for every person to continue to grow. And we do that 
through the ministry actively of encouraging one another. So we're called to both be encouraging people and we're called to receive encouragement from one another. And it's the giving and receiving of affirmation and encouragement that is our theme this morning. And that's what we want to look at. There are many ways that we can grow in Christ. We grow through solitude. We grow through silence. We grow through, through study. We grow through service. We grow through worship. But in today's text, we discover that one of the most important roles that people play in our growth is this ministry of encouragement. So we're going to learn to find the right people in our lives who will encourage us and to be the right person as a person of encouragement for the transformation of the other. And we see this in this particular text, Acts chapter 9. And what we do is we discover in this text Paul's growth and transformation. And we see it in three different snapshots. Number one, on his own in Damascus. Number two, without affirmation and encouragement in Jerusalem. And number three, affirmed and launched in the ministry by Barnabas. And so look at, let's look at those three things. We begin in Acts chapter 9. Paul, in Acts chapter 9, has encountered uh, God on the Damascus road. He's encountered it through this vision of Christ, Jesus, who you, you are persecuting. That's what Jesus says to Paul. He goes to Ananias' house. Uh, he's, he's fasted. There's been fasting and, and uh, learning. And then uh, he's blind, so there's this sense deprivation. It's kind of this ancient path, spiritual discipline experience that he has. And now he goes out and he begins his ministry, quote unquote, on his own in Damascus. Look at verse 22. It's a very interesting verse here. Verse 22, we read, Saul kept increasing in strength, confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So three uh, phrases, words I want you to capture here when he's on his own in Damascus. Number one, he's increasing in strength. Number two, he's confounding. Number three, he's proving. So Paul goes from being the persecutor of the church to the preacher basically overnight. And what happens is he takes all his energy and intellect that he'd previously used to persecute Christ followers, and he's now investing that energy in preaching Christ instead of persecuting Christ's followers. But the thing that I want you to see here is in this text in Acts chapter 9, the entire time that he's in Damascus, there is not a single record of a single convert. So he's in Damascus, he's preaching, he's arguing, he's proving, he's intellectually superior to everyone, and yet the fruit of his ministry at least visibly, is zero. The text is silent regarding any mention of anyone responding to the message. No record of conversion. In fact, knowing that, the text is clear that people were actually suspicious of him and were so offended by his message that there was a plot to kill him that was put into place and that he would have been killed had his supporters not helped him escape through a, wall, a, a, a window that was in the city wall. So these assassins had people at every city gate, and the only reason that Paul escaped was because he was lowered through a window in the wall of the city, and then Paul disappears. So here's his record in summary of his time in Damascus. A, Christ followers suspicious of him, B, his efforts to confound the Jews by proving to them that he was right and they were wrong resulted in a plot to kill him. C, he had to be lowered through a basket through a hole in the city wall in order to escape. 
confounding, proving, arguing, preaching, intellectually superior, fruit, zero. Like, not the best way to start a public ministry. But here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that starting badly doesn't mean God abandons you. Doesn't mean you'll necessarily finish badly. Peter started badly with his denial of Christ. Abraham started badly when he lied about the identity of his wife to the king of Egypt. Judah started badly by selling his brother as a slave and then lying about it to his dad. Whatever. It's never been the point because the story of the gospel has never been a story of, bam, instant transformation. One day you're on your own, you come to Christ, the next morning you wake up and you look exactly like Jesus. That's not the way it works. Coming to Christ doesn't mean a magical instantaneous transformation, at least not in most cases. And there's a reason for this. And the reason is there's a seed that has been planted in you, but the seed that is Christ's resurrection life needs to crack open, germinate, develop roots, go down, grow, break the soil, begin to find expression in your life, begin to change your thought life and your financial life and, your, and the use of your time, break addictive behavior, change the way you respond when someone mistreats you, change the way you use your, your, your language so that you move from gossip to encouragement, change, 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 and it all takes time. And that's okay. So you come to Christ, your lust doesn't disappear. Your, your secret addiction doesn't disappear. You come to Christ and your self-medication doesn't disappear. You come to Christ and your temper doesn't disappear. You come to Christ and your gossip doesn't disappear. You have new information. You have a new belief system. You have a new heart even, a seed planted in you, but your soul, which means your personality, still has a lifelong journey of transformation ahead of it. And we know it's lifelong because Paul says here, uh, this Paul says at the end of his life, Philippians chapter three, I'm not there yet. I'm not done being transformed. So transformation is a lifelong, ongoing, slow process. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 18. We're changed from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory, looking more and more like Jesus. In fact, uh, years ago, right after I graduated from high school, I worked at a camp called Mount Hermon down in uh, California in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And I remember sitting in a staff meeting and uh, one of the people who'd come to give devotions at the staff meeting saying to us, your growth in Christ is uh, similar to making uh, sugar crystals. Have any of you ever made rock candy? You know, you take a string and you have a jar filled with sugar water and then you let the water evaporate and all the sugar kind of collects on the string and it makes these little crystals. But day by day, moment by moment, you can look at it and you don't see anything happening. But it is happening, but it's only visible uh, when, when you are patiently allowing it to ripen, if I can say it that way. So all of us come to Christ and yet though we have a new seed, there's a whole journey in front of us. I remember uh, early in my faith life, I was deep into apologetics and arguing with people about the faith. And I remember there was this Mormon guy at work in a uh, drafting office where I was when I was studying architecture and I was a draftsman. And uh, I prepared myself and I read all about Mormonism 
And then I pretended to be interested in Mormonism so that he would invite me to his house for a meal. And I came prepared to argue, right? And then he invited, uh, he invited me to his house for dinner and he invited the bishop from the Mormon church also to this meal. And we got into it. It was a big apologetics argument. And I remember asking a question at one point and the bishop couldn't answer. And I was like this, I won! What a dumb thing to say. And then uh, my friend, the draftsman, he said, Richard, get out of here. I'm, I'm going to ask you to leave right now. He said, ever since you walked in the door, you've been argumentative, you've been arrogant, and I'm sick of it. Just leave. And so I did a good job offending a Mormon family, but I didn't prove anything to anybody. And here's the thing to see, two couple things. A, thanks be to God, Jesus didn't give up on me. B, when the day's done, the most important thing about your faith isn't your intellect, isn't your ability to quote-unquote win. The most important thing is this. You're called to Christ so that you can look like Christ. Paul says it later in Galatians chapter 1. He said, God was pleased. It was God's desire to reveal his son in me. So when the day's done, winning doesn't happen through intellectual chess matches. Winning happens by love. Winning happens by turning the other cheek. Winning happens by making eye contact. Winning happens by smiling. Winning happens by weeping with those who weep. Winning happens by love, because that's what it means to look, by, look like Jesus. So here's Paul, the beginning of his ministry. And the adjectives that describe the, the beginning of his ministry, confounding, proving, increasing in strength, and by the way, fruitless. We need more than intellect. We need the Spirit of Christ visible. So that's the first place he is. He's in Damascus, and there's no fruit. Second, later he goes to Jerusalem, and so we'll read there. When he came to Jerusalem, verse 26, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but the disciples were all afraid of him not believing that he was a disciple. So here's the great Paul in his first ministry, Damascus, uh, fruitless, strike one. In his second ministry, he goes to Jerusalem. He wants to associate with the disciples, but they were threatened by him, thinking that maybe he's a double agent, pretending to be converted in order to get names. It's understandable that he'd be suspicious, but nobody believes in him, strike two. Let me just make an observation here. There's a messiness to the conversion process precisely because it's not instantaneous. The seed that is Christ's life dropped into the soil of our hearts has already germinated other things, like that soil has germinated other seeds. Seeds of racism, seeds of materialism, seeds of nationalism, seeds of anti-Semitism, seeds of rage, seeds of individualism and bitterness and shame. And these manifestations, each of them, display our brokenness and the reality that we live in a broken world. And here's the thing that you must see. The seed of Christ has been dropped into that same soil and will germinate. But the fruit of those other seeds don't instantly disappear at conversion. 
So I have the seed in the soil that is Christ, but I still have a lot of messes. I still have a lot of blind spots. I still have a lot of unhealthy coping mechanisms in my life. In other words, watch this, I have Jesus, but I don't look like Jesus. The answer to this dilemma, hear me, very important, is not, I'm going to refuse to listen to you if you have a blind spot. That is not the answer. The answer is not to sweep every person who ever ever had a blind spot into the trash bin of history. The New York Times uh, writes this week about big dangers in this moment in history, and I quote here, the two main ideological currents of today are putting the very foundations of our civilization at risk. There's a tear-it-all-down populism that has swept so much of the right in the past five years, and now a tear-it-all-down progressivism that threatens to sweep the left. But what is in common on both the left and the right is this, tear-it-all-down. That's why I look at someone, and if they don't represent exactly my ideal, I nullify everything they stand for. Don't do that. Because if you do that, you will stand alone in the end. There was a friend of mine. uh, He's since gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, His name uh, is uh, Mr. Van Duren, and he was a banker in England. And I remember giving him, he had spoken at a Cape and Ray school, and I'd given him a ride to the airport. And I asked him about a particular author that I was reading at the time, who was a pastor in London, because I loved this guy's books. And so I said to him, hey, do you read any of this particular guy? He says, oh, whenever whenever I see those books in a bookshop, he says, I buy all his books and burn them. That's literally what he said. I buy all his books and burn them. I said, what? I think this guy's great. He says, "Uh, Richard, here's the thing. He talks a good game, but uh, he he was so judgmental of anyone who didn't think like him that by the end of his life, he would only take communion with himself. Now, that's kind of the extreme danger, but I want to share with you that the New York Times is spot on. We are in a tear-it-all-down culture right now, on the left and the right. And that is not the gospel. Because the problem with a tear-it-all-down culture is it does not allow space for repentance and change and transformation. And this also reduces every person to a one-dimensional figure characterized by their weakness. If Paul's authority as a Christ follower was predicated on Paul's past, he'd be finished before he ever began. David would never qualify for ministry, be finished before he ever began. In spite of his confession and repentance when confronted with his sin of adultery, he'd be done. Judah would never qualify for ministry because of his past family issues. And yet Judah is in God's story David is in God's story. Paul is in God's story. I've said it many times, don't judge the movie by the snapshot. Because you can find an incriminating snapshot of every single person. And the real issue is never this. Have you failed to represent Christ? Because the answer for all of us is the same. Yes. (laughs) 
your snapshot, your snapshot, your snapshot, your snapshot, my snapshot, failure. It's not the point. The point is the movie, not the snapshots. And the question is, when I look at the movie, do I see a trajectory of transformation from glory to glory? Not without setbacks, but a heart that is responsive and repentant and willing to continue to grow. If I see that, that's what I need to see. That's enough. So don't judge the snapshot by the movie. Don't judge people based on single actions. Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 7. Don't judge so that you will not be judged. Why? Verse 2, because in the way you judge, you will be judged. So in other words, if you create a snapshot culture of judgments, then you too will be judged by a snapshot culture of judgments. And so if I, if I nullify all the work that God is doing in your life because of your single failure, then my work will also be nullified. And Jesus goes on and he says, hey, uh, don't try and take the speck out of your brother's eye because you have a log in your eye. First take the log out of your own eye, then you can see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't take some particular sin that is not yours and make it the defining sin of the moment. And then judge everybody who is guilty of that sin that is not your sin. Don't do that. Do not do that because if you do that, A, you're judging by the snapshot. B, you're creating, in a sense, a cancel culture, right? Where you're saying, this person is no longer valid because of the one thing I see there that is wrong. And if you do that, you are taking people out of God's story that God has in God's story. It's really important. Don't negate someone's faith because of a single moment. Remember the end of the prodigal son story? <laughs> the guy who went off is the guy who actually loves his father. The guy who had wooden obedience is the guy who's actually filled with bitterness in his heart. Remember the end of the John Newton story? He owned slaves and wrote Amazing Grace. And we still sing that song, even though he owned slaves. Dangerous culture right now. The way out of this culture of tear it all down populism on the right and left is the example of Barnabas. Because in the end, Saul become Paul is affirmed and launched by Barnabas. Look at verse 27 of Acts chapter 9. All the disciples are afraid of Paul, not believing he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and how uh, Jesus had talked to him and how at Damascus he'd spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas affirms 
Paul's ministry. Everyone's suspicious, and then along comes Barnabas. Let me give you a brief biography of Barnabas. He's Jewish. He's a Christ follower. And his name, Barnabas, literally means son of encouragement. So he's aptly named son of encouragement because he is, throughout the scripture, an encourager. So in this text, he believes in and vouches for the credibility of Saul become Paul when nobody else would. Acts 9, 27. I mean, where would Paul be today without Barnabas? And then as the story unfolds, uh, Christianity explodes in Gentile Antioch, and Barnabas is sent there by the apostles to oversee the work. So Barnabas goes up to Antioch, sees that the work is massive, that lots of Gentiles are coming to Christ. So he goes to Tarsus, where Paul had withdrawn from preaching and was making tents. Barnabas goes to Tarsus to get Paul and brings Paul back to Antioch to be with him. And they stay together for a year, establishing a church in Antioch. Barnabas believing enough in Paul to go and bring him out of tent making into this kind of full-time vocational ministry, whereby up here now in Antioch, he's equipping the church. And then they went to Jerusalem to deliver an offering, these two. And they take someone named John Mark with them. And then later they go back again to Jerusalem for a church council because there's this huge debate about whether Gentiles could be in the faith or not. And if so, what parts of the law do the Gentiles have to keep? Do they have to be circumcised? Can they, can they worship on Sunday or is it Saturday only? Do they have to keep the dietary laws? There's a big debate, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks. And then Paul goes out on another missionary journey. And he wants Barnabas to go with him. But Bar- watch this. Barnabas wants to bring John Mark with him as well. And uh, Paul doesn't want John Mark to go with him because on a previous journey, Barnabas and Paul and John Mark were traveling together. And at one point, John Mark dropped out of the journey and went a different direction. And so now, uh, Paul wants to go on a journey with Barnabas. Barnabas says, I want to go, but I want to take John Mark. Paul says, no, you can't trust him. Barnabas says, well, he blew it, but let's give him another chance. Paul is like this, no, I'm not going with that guy. I will never trust him again. He failed me once. I'm done with him. And so it says in the text, there's this Huge disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. Paul wouldn't even be in ministry without Barnabas. Now Barnabas wants to encourage John Mark the same way that Barnabas encourages Paul. Paul won't let him. So they split. Paul and Silas go one way. Barnabas and John Mark go a different way. Barnabas believed in John Mark. Paul had judged him, deemed him unworthy. If Paul had total control, he would have banned John Mark from ministry entirely. Instead, there was, and we call it this way, it's a kind of a church split, right? They go different directions. Now, here's what I love about the story. Fast forward to the very end. 
2 Timothy 4.11. It's, it's the end of uh, Paul's life. He, he says, a couple of verses up from uh, verse 11 of 2 Timothy 4, he says, my time is at hand. I've run the race. I've fought the good fight. 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, hey, when you come and visit, I, I just love this. When you come and visit, he says, bring John Mark with you. It's profitable for ministry. So by the end of Paul's life, he sees the value of a man that he didn't see the value of a decade earlier. Why? Because Barnabas believed in him and affirmed him and encouraged him. Let me make just a couple observations here as we close. First of all, Remember, this is very important for us as a edu highly educated community. A change of information is not the goal of rebirth. The verbs proving and confounding are the wrong words to describe our calling as Christ followers. We're not called to prove. We're not called to argue. We're not called to debate. We're not called to confound. Paul will later understand that the goal is not proving anything or confounding anyone with our amazing skills of debate or preaching or rhetoric. When this becomes the goal, faith gets ugly. We turn Christianity into an intellectual chess match. And in our arguing, we demonize people who disagree with us and we create camps of us and them and in and out. And many people have rejected the faith because they don't like our arrogance. Well, our arrogance was never a fruit of the Spirit. When we reduce faith to a creed or a statement or worse, to institutional loyalty or intellectual loyalty, we're on false ground. We become arrogant instead of Christ-like, and in our defensive posture, we become blind to the ways we're missing it, so that things like colonialism and racism and nationalism and individualism and materialism and anti-Semitism go unchecked, both in our lives and in the institutions carrying the name of Christ. And those things have gone unchecked for thousands of years, often because we understood the faith to be nothing more than an intellectual assent to a doctrinal statement. It is not that. When you're born again, the seed that is Christ's life has been planted in you and God's desire is that seed would germinate so that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, the capacity to serve, the capacity to give would be the expression of your life. Not an intellectual chess match. So we must remember always the goal is that you look like Jesus. And if the church had simply remembered that for the past 2,000 years, lots of trouble could have been avoided. And then we need to remember as well that Paul fell short of that goal. That when he came to Christ, he didn't look like Jesus. He fell short. You fall short. I fall short. That doesn't mean God's done with us. So when we wake up to our racism or our sexism, or our greed, or our defensive posture, or our gossip. Don't fall into shame and condemnation and withdraw yourself from God's story. Oh, I'm a failure. Look, how could I have been so blind? Yeah, you once were blind. Now you see. Good. See. Get on with it. God's not done with you. Don't be done. And then just significantly, this is so important. We're transformed with a little help from our friends. Where would Paul be without Barnabas? We might not have the, most of the New Testament without Barnabas. 
Paul believed in him when, excuse me, Barnabas believed in him when no one else did. So where would we be if there weren't people believing in us? Where would I be without my friend at Cal Poly who so encouraged me and kind of roped me into playing piano for a little Bible study? And ultimately, his affirmation and encouragement was critical to me having a sense of call that eventuated in a change of major and a change of vocation. Where would I be without someone believing in, in, in me? And I'll never forget my friend Jim who said this to me one time in a conversation when I was attending Cal Poly studying architecture. He said, Richard, in my opinion, most people already feel bad about themselves. Most people know how crappy they are. Most people know their failures. What people need to hear is how they're gifted, how good they are, how much potential they have. And so he said to me, my ministry is a ministry of encouragement. Man, I wouldn't even be here today without that word. And then I asked the question, where would I be without Katie Bond and Jim McClurg and Bob Niskin and, and Dave Enfield and the rest of the team that constituted the, the search committee of Bethany Community Church 25 years ago, who came to me and said, Richard, we think God has called you to be pastor of Bethany Community Church. And I said, no, yeah, that's not true. I looked at your thing and I'm not qualified in any way. I don't pastor big churches. I don't have administrative skills. I, here's 10 reasons why I'm not the guy. Well, whatever. I know we made that list, they said, but we think you're the person that God wants for this season. Without that word of encouragement, I wouldn't be here. So I've been blessed to be the recipient of encouraging words over and over and over again in my life and ministry. And now I want to pay it forward and encourage you to do the same. So today, today, here's a way you can apply this. I want you to text someone, email someone, call someone, FaceTime someone, and thank them for their gifts. Thank you for being a drummer and using your gifts. Thank you for serving and using your gifts. Thank you for the way you care for people. Thank you for being a pastor. Thank you for going the extra mile. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your own ministry of encouragement. Thank you. I see a gift in you. Would you just call somebody today and do that? That's important. We all know how bad we are. We all know how we fail. We need encouragement. So affirm someone today. And then, very important, affirm someone to someone else. In other words, my friend Eric, it's not just important for me to affirm Eric. It's important for me to affirm Eric to Megan. It's important for me to affirm Megan to Nick. It's an affirmation, not just to the person, but to someone else, is what makes this community healthy. And so if we are to be people of hope in the midst of this season, we don't have to be in a holding pattern, waiting for a, uh, a vaccine. No, no. Right here, right now, we can call someone and begin a ministry of encouragement. Let's pray.
Father, I want to thank you so much for Barnabas. I don't know where any of us would be right now were it not for his ministry of encouragement. Thank you for those who have encouraged us, Father. And now, would you, in this season, grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would become actively encouraging. There's no reason to be bored in this season, none. We can call, we can write, we can FaceTime, we can do what we do to be encouragers to others. Everyone needs it. Use us in this way and we'll thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's worship together.